This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. Uh, as Matt mentioned, we're going to continue on with our series that really happened. I'm going to cover life and death of Christ. Um, you know, as I thought about this and thought about, well, how do you prove that Jesus lived uh, other than really looking at the Bible? There's no, not a whole lot of evidence out there, physical evidence. And it made me think of, well, how do we prove that someone, say, 50 years ago or 20 years ago lived? Well, we've got things that we can look at. And it made me think of people that I would have liked to have met. I would have liked to have met Joe Dukes. Uh, I've heard stories about him, I've seen pictures, uh, got recording of him singing, beautiful voice, and it would have been great to have been able to meet him, but I never got that opportunity. I would have loved to have met Janae Goad, Cress's best friend, I never got the opportunity to do that, but I've got pictures of her, we've got stories, I know her family, I can go and, and tell that she was obviously a real person. And if we wanted to, we could go back and we could look at birth certificates. We could look at death certificates. Some stuff you could probably look up online and, and prove that they uh, were real people. But we don't, we don't have that with Christ. Uh, we have our Bible. And that's pretty much the proof that we have that Jesus lived, that he was a real person. And so, as Christians, we believe that the Bible is truth and that the Bible... Or the Bible is true and the Bible alone is truth. And that's what I tried to do whenever I started doing the research on this. I tried to base all my research on stuff that lined up with the Bible. Because if we can agree that the Bible is true and the things lined up with what the Bible says, then we can agree that it's true. I hope that makes sense. It makes sense in my head. Um, so keep that in mind as we go over this. Uh, I'm sorry if you're trying to take notes this morning. It's a lot of stuff to, to cover, so get what you can. Um, I, I can give you the PowerPoint afterwards if you want. Uh, I can give you the whole lesson if you would like. But um, I'm trying to get through it uh, without stretching it way, way too long, so bear with me. So first, we want to look at turning this on. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, we read, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. And through this scripture, uh, we can see that long before the world began, God had a plan to bring us redemption through Jesus. Through Christ. And we can pick up a Bible, we can turn to the Old Testament, and we can read prophecies about a Savior that was to come. The Bible, Bible scholars have concluded that hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, more than 300 prophecies were recorded. Um, and they tell of his coming, his life, his journey to the cross, and the power of resurrection. So by looking at these prophecies, and Jesus fulfilling his prophecies, along with some sources outside of the Bible, we can conclude that 
Jesus isn't a myth. Jesus is a real person. This man lived on earth, and he did so for our benefit. You know, before I even started this lesson, I knew that finding physical evidence, like I said earlier, uh, that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, more than likely just it wasn't going to happen. Because that was 2,000 years ago. Things just don't last that long. And I did find a few things that support events that happened in Jesus' life. And we're going to go over those a little bit later. But I want to start out with taking a look at some of the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus and how he fulfilled those prophecies. And then we're also going to look at some prophecies that Jesus made and uh, see how those were fulfilled as well. And the first one we're going to look at is Christ would be filled with power, peace, and the Spirit from birth. We read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And we can see the fulfillment of that when we read chapter, Luke chapter 4, verse 18. That we see that Christ himself fulfilled these scriptures. <clears throat> the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set, a liberty them, uh, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So Jesus reads this prophecy from Isaiah to the people that are in the synagogue, basically telling them that, He's the one that Isaiah and these other prophets have been uh, or have wrote about. He says, "Look, I'm that guy. This prophecy is fulfilled through me." The next prophecy, Christ would be born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, "Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel." Well, Mary received this very prophecy when the angel Gabriel visited her. And we see this fulfilled clearly through scripture in Luke chapter 1, verse 30 through 32. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call, him Je- call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. We'll jump down to verse 34 and 35. Then said Mary unto the angel, How should this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of of thee shall be called the Son of God. We see a similar account with Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. And she shall bring forth a son... And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which is being interpreted as God with us. So we can see that an angel uh, speaks to Mary, telling her she's going to get pregnant, have a son whose name will be Jesus, the Son of God. And then the angel comes to Joseph in a dream, tells him the same thing. He also tells him this is happening so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. This prophecy is going to be fulfilled through this child that your wife will give birth to. The next prophecy, Christ, Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of, the, out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And we can see in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, that Christ was born in Bethlehem. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. We jump down to to verse 6. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Well, plainly we can see that Jesus was born in Bethlehem just like it was prophesied, prophesied back in Micah. The next one we're going to look at is um, a star would point the way towards Christ. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. So God places the star in the sky to lead the wise men to Christ uh, so that they might worship him. We see that in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 2. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now, throw in a little bit of astrology to kind of back that up. Colin J. Humphreys in the Star of Bethlehem, a comment in 5 B.C. in the date of the birth of Christ. Um, he says that Jesus was most likely born in 5 B.C. And he comes up with that conclusion because the Chinese recorded a major new slow-moving comet or star with a sweeping tail in the Capricorn region of the sky. This is the comet that Humphrey believes was called the Star of Bethlehem. Now there are are other events that back this up. I'm not going to go over all of it. Just to save time, we'd be here for another hour. Um, But after looking at some of the other ideas and theories that people have, I felt like this one was more likely accurate. It aligned more with the Bible than other ones that I looked at. The next, Jesus' entire line of genealogy would be confirmed through Scripture. Sure, got that on the right slide. Jesus was from the line of Abraham. We can see that in Genesis 12, 3, and then Isaac in Genesis 17, 21, and Genesis 26, 4, and then Jacob in Genesis 28, 14, Judah in Genesis 49, 8 through 12, Jesse in Isaiah 11, 1, and David in Isaiah 9, 7, 
in Jeremiah 23, 5. Now, we look in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we can actually see uh, the whole genealogy lined out for us. We're not going to read that whole scripture, but we'll read the first, the first verse there. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And, what's that, and what that's saying is the account of the ancestry or family of the genealogical table of Jesus Christ. So basically, it's just saying that it's, it's going to show the whole genealogy of Jesus from Abraham to Jesus himself. So the next part, like I mentioned, we're going to look at some of the New Testament prophecies that Jesus made that were fulfilled. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, to, 1 through 2, Jesus prophesied that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed and that its destruction would be so complete that not one stone would be left standing on top of another. Now, Sean covered this last week and did a great job of it, so I'm not going to go into huge detail like he did. Um, we read there in Matthew 24, verse 1 through 2, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And this prophecy was fulfilled about 40 years later. And it's even recorded by Josephus. You know, a couple of a couple of guys have already talked about Josephus a little bit. But he says, And I cannot but wish that we had all died before we had seen that holy city demolished by the hands of our enemies or the foundations of our holy temple dug up after so profane a manner. And then Jesus prophesied that the Jews would be exiled. In Luke 21, 24, Jesus prophesied, like I said, the Jews would be exiled from their land. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trotted down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And this prophecy was, was fulfilled beginning back or beginning about 40 years later. And then Jesus prophesied that the gospel will be preached worldwide and his words will never pass away. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus promised that the gospel would be preached to people throughout the world. There in verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And then Luke 21, 33, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. You think about this. Think about all the people that have ever lived. From one generation to the next, the words of just a few or a small percentage are remembered beyond the generation that follows them. And here we are some 2,000 years later, and after Jesus had spoken these prophecies, and the words of Jesus are everywhere. They've, they're being taught all over the world. And the Bible said to have been put to be the most published book ever. And by some estimates, the Bible has been printed at least 6 billion times throughout history. If the Bible is not true, if it were all a lie, why would it be printed so many times? Why would it last for 2,000 years?
considering the prophecies we've looked at and seeing the fulfillment of them, what do you think the odds are that Jesus could fulfill eight prophecies of the 300 plus prophecies in the Old Testament? Just eight prophecies, not the 300 plus prophecies, just eight prophecies. What do you think those odds are? The odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight prophecies of the 300 plus prophecies are one in 100 quadrillion. I don't know that I've heard the word quadrillion very much. That's a lot of zeros. One in 100 quadrillion. But guess what? Jesus, Jesus fulfilled eight prophecies. But not only that, he actually p- fulfilled the 300 plus prophecies that are in the Old Testament. I don't know what those odds are uh, that he would fulfill all of those, but I would say with just eight prophecies, it being one in 100 quadrillion, I would say it's a lot. Do you know what your odds are? I missed a slide there. Sorry about that. Do you know what your odds are of winning the Powerball lottery? Now, I know the odds are zero if you don't buy a ticket, but just play along with me for a minute. Pretend like we've bought a ticket to win the lottery. If you were to buy a ticket, your odds of winning the Powerball lottery are 1,292,200,000. That's not very good odds. I tried to, I was going to break this down so you could see how long it would take if you bought a ticket, like what, twice a week? I think that's how, how many times they pull for the lottery. And out of a lifespan, well, it was, it was longer than any of us would live, so I just didn't add that. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, though. That means that you would have to play the lottery 292,200,000 times just to have one chance of winning. That's just one chance. It's kind of like this church. We've got one chance. We literally have one member whose name is Chance. Sorry, I just want to make sure y'all are still listening. Chance, I apologize. I got dad jokes. Ask my girls. They can tell you all about it. Now, if my math is correct, your odds of winning the lottery are roughly 342,231 times greater than the odds that Jesus never existed. I say that's pretty good odds for Jesus. I mean, I've never won the lottery. I don't know anybody that's ever won the Powerball lottery. I thought that was uh, pretty good odds. Now, we're going to get away from the prophecies for a little bit. Uh, We're going to talk about some other textual sources. Some of these have been talked about a little bit. The Dead Sea Scrolls, um, they point to Jesus' existence. The scrolls, which are a vast number of documents found found in Israel in the 1940s, date to sometime between 150 B.C. and 70 A.D., The scrolls refer to a teacher of righteousness and mention the Son of God, which obviously is referring to Jesus. But at the very least, if people don't want to believe that, the scrolls disclose the context of Jesus' life and message, according to scholar James Chelsworth at the Princeton Theological Seminary. Then we have a historian, Bart Ehrman, and professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He points out a number of people who met the real Jesus wrote about him. And although it's not physical proof, Ehrman also notes that if someone wanted to invent a Messiah, the story might be slightly more heroic. He says, the the Messiah was supposed to overthrow the enemies. 
And so if you're going to make up a, a Messiah, you'd make up a powerful Messiah. You wouldn't make up someone who was humiliated, tortured, and then killed by the enemies. I mean, think about it. If you're going to make up a story about a Savior, would you make up what the Bible has? Or would you make it a little bit different? It probably wouldn't be the same as what the account in the Bible is. And we can look at some writings from ancient historians, like Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman historian and politician in the first century AD. He wrote about a Christian that suffered under Pontius Pilate. And we can, again, we can look in the Bible, we can see that those things are true. And again, we have Josephus, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about him later. He says that Jesus died and appeared alive again to his disciples. And then we have Phallus, describes the physical events of Jesus' death just as they were recorded in Luke 23, verses 44 and 45. And scholars say that Thallus actually wrote in A.D. 52, while Luke didn't write his gospel until A.D. 65. Now again, those things, um, what Josephus says, and then what Thallus says, we can look in the Bible and we can see that those things align up with what the Bible says. And we have some Jewish, Jewish sources. Then we, uh, when we look at those, we have the Talmud which will, it shows uh, AD 70 to 200, written somewhere around there, directly references the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then we have the uh, Taldeth. It states that Jesus was in a tomb but was resurrected and not at the tomb when people came to see him days after his death. Again, that's something else that we can look at in the Bible. We can see that those line up with that. We have a Gentile source. Um, I may mess up this name, Mara Bar Seripian. He was a Syrian who wrote a letter to his son describing how the Jews executed Jesus. And again, we can look, that in the, look at that in the Bible and see those things are true. We have uh, the fourth source we have is Gnostic sources, which talk about Jesus directly, but they're not as, as credible as the books that are in the Bible. The Gospel of Truth it referenced Jesus as a historical person who had a death for many and nailed to a tree. Again, we can look in the Bible. We, he died for all of us. There was a death for many. He died for all of our sins. He was nailed to a cross. A cross was made from a tree or trees. And then we have the treatise on the resurrection. It says that Jesus died and came back to life. The Gospel of Thomas records Jesus' death. The Gospel of P Peter describes how Mary and other women went to the tomb, in Jesus, uh, the tomb of Jesus, but he wasn't there. Again, other things that line up with what the Bible says. And then we have our fifth source, which is the lost sources. Uh, these are sources that we don't have copies of, but there's portions of these writings that are quoted um, in other people's writings. So someone else wrote about what they had in, in their writings. We have the Acts of Pontius Pilate says that in Jesus' crucifixion, he was pierced in his hands and feet. Philagan wrote that Jesus was alive, died, and arose to life after his death. Again, those are things that we can look in the Bible and we can see that 
that they are correct, that they line up with what the Bible says. The next thing that we're going to look at is Luke's account uh, affirmed by modern archaeology. This one, to me, was pretty, I don't know, concrete evidence, I guess, pretty strong evidence to me. These guys pretty much proved that what Luke wrote in the Bible was all correct. Uh, Luke's status as a world-class historian, accurate in even smallest details, has been brought to light by modern archaeology. For example, we have Sir William Ramsey, considered one of the greatest archaeologists of all time, originally thought he would scientifically discredit Luke's accounts by visiting examining the places mentioned in his gospel and Acts. Um, that didn't happen. <laughs> Ramsey's a student of the skeptical German higher criticism of the 19th century and it was taught that the New Testament was an unreliable religious treatise written in the mid-second mid century by individuals far removed from the events described. But after years of tracing Luke's accounts of Paul's travels and doing archaeological digs along the way, Ramsey ended up completely reversing his thoughts about the Bible in the first century history. Uh, he became convinced that Acts was written in the first century by the traditional author, and he acquired a very high regard for Luke as a historian. He wrote, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed among placed along with the greatest of historians. In 1896, uh, he began publishing his discoveries in a book titled St. Paul the Traveler and the Roman Citizen. The book caused an uproar of dismay among the, the skeptics of the world because its affirmation of the biblical record was totally unexpected. I mean, I guess if you were start going to... If your initial point was to show that it wasn't correct, and then his peers see what he's written and see that he's written total opposite of what they expected, of course it would, it would cause an uproar. Expecting him to say, yeah, this stuff isn't true, when indeed he says, yes, they are. And over the next 20 years, he published other, other volumes showing how he discovered Luke to be accurate in the tiniest details of his account. The evidence was so overwhelming that many atheists gave up their atheism and embraced Christianity. That's pretty strong, especially when you're expecting to do just the opposite. Then we have William F. Albright, archaeologist and late professor of Semitic languages at John Hopkins University, one of the 20th century's most influential American biblical scholars. And like Ramsey, he began as an agnostic, skeptical of the Bible as a reliable book of history, but also like Ramsey, his views were completely changed by doing the hard work of an archaeologist in the field, going and, and retracing all those things. Albright discovered that not only was Luke reliable, but the entire Bible was a reliable source of history. According to the new evidence that demands a verdict, Albright wrote, Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and brought increased recognition to the Bible as a source of history. These two men spent years trying to prove that 
Luke's account in the Bible were not correct. And trying to discredit the Bible as a, a good source of, of history. And what did they do? They did just the opposite of that. Going in with one mind of, I'm gonna, we're going to prove it's not correct to find out that it is correct after extensive research. And then, what happens? They end up actually bringing people to Christ. People that were atheists. To get them to change their views and start following Christ. Next, we're going to look at Jesus' death. Uh, I'm going to look at, or we're going to look at some Old Testament prophecies. I'm not going to go into much of the physical or archaeological uh, details or evidence of Jesus' death this morning. Josh is going to cover a little bit that a little bit of that this afternoon. Um, you know, when I first started this, I started thinking about Jesus' death, and I started thinking about, well, do I talk about actual what happened at his death or what? Well, if I were to do that, we would have been here for a lot longer as well. But none of that, me talking about what physically happened during his death, is going to give us much evidence that he existed. So uh, I'm not covering that. Now, we're going to cover some prophecies, and we're going to cover some uh, other things that that align with the Bible. First, we're going to talk about the betrayal by Judas. In Psalms 41.9, it says, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Then Jesus quotes this in John Chapter 13, verse 18, I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture will be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And then we could read in Matthew chapter 26, uh, verses 47 through 49, where Judas betrays Jesus and and fulfills that prophecy. The next, we're going to look at the pierced hands and feet. In Psalms twenty-two sixteen, it foretells Jesus being nailed to the cross. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 31, and after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him, and led him away to crucify him. And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. There are a lot of other things that we could look at, uh, as far as Jesus' death and, and prophecies, but I think that I think we all get it. There were prophecies in the Old Testament, and Jesus fulfilled and fulfilled those prophecies, and they were documented in the New Testament. Um, again, part of this is to keep it not as long. I would get to some maybe more physical evidence. Before 1961, there was no physical evidence that Pontius Pilate was real or ever existed. Now, Pilate was the governor of uh, Judea who ordered the crucifixion of Jesus. We know that. He was mentioned in multiple texts, but his administrative records, letters to Rome, and even his aqueduct didn't survive. But finally, in 1961, when the pilot stone was discovered, we have proof of his existence. 
The pilot stone was excavated at Caesarea Maritima. I think it's how you pronounce that. A seaport built by Herod the Great. The stone bears the name of Pontius Pilate, making it the only archaeological evidence that Pilate existed. And the inscription reads, you can kind of see on here where part of that is, uh, it's like on the right side, you can see where they're still writing on the left side. Uh, it's deteriorated, but they've gone and they've put that in there to where you can see it lines up. Um, the inscription reads, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has made this Tiberium and dedicated it to the Augustan gods. So the Pilate stone helps establish the existence of an important person mentioned in the Gospels, um, giving it more evidence that Jesus is a real person. I told you we're going to get back to Josephus and talk a little bit about him. In 93 AD, only a handful of decades after the death of Jesus, a Jewish scholar and historian named Flavius Josephus mentioned Jesus twice. Joseph was born in Jerusalem in 30s AD, the same decade Jesus was crucified. He wrote a series of histories of his era. In one of them, called the Antiquities, Josephus names Jesus as the so-called Christ. Josephus writes, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure, he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. Again, those are things that we can look up in the Bible and see that they align with what the Bible account is. Um, these passages actually are somewhat controversial. Many scholars believe it was corrupted by later Christian scribes who made Josephus' words more positive. But even if the more positive references to Jesus as a wise man and the Christ were added by later scholars, Josephus' historical account independently confirms the existence of Jesus. He describes Jesus as a teacher. He says that he was executed by Pontius Pilate, and he calls Jesus the founder of Christianity. Again, these things all line up with what the Bible says. And as a non-Christian, Josephus has no stake in supporting a mythical Christ. So why would he write it? And I think that makes his historical details even more reliable. Now, So we get to the end. In spite of the circumstantial nature of some pieces of physical evidence, the wealth of evidence adds up to the same conclusion. Jesus is a real person. All of those prophecies didn't just coincidentally line up. So the odds are in Jesus' favor. And proof like the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Pilate Stone, and written sources from Jewish and Roman authors establishes the existence of many people and places mentioned in the Gospels. Now, obviously, while the followers of Jesus had, had an incentive to claim he was divine, their writings also come from people who met the real Jesus when he was alive. Again, it all adds up to Jesus as a real person. He really was born of a virgin. He really is God's son. 
He really did live a perfect life, and he really did die for our sins. You know, we talked about odds earlier. Your odds of winning the Powerball lottery are 1 in 292,200,000. Now, you've got zero chance if you don't purchase a ticket. I know that. Do you know what your odds are of making it to heaven without Jesus? Zero. You have no chance of making it to heaven without Jesus. And you don't have to buy a ticket to get to heaven. Jesus has already paid that on the cross. All you have to do is accept him as your savior and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.